Just the other day, Thomas and I had the uh, uh, opportunity to, uh, to get involved in a great fitness program. Now, you might think the YMCA would have the best of fitness programs or athletic clubs or Planet Fitness or any number of things, but I tell you, there is just some, nothing that's going to work you out any more uh, than a shovel, a rake, and a hoe. Uh, the idea that you would get out there and you would turn dirt, uh, that you would uh, load uh, uh, a truck full of, of, of topsoil for the purpose of building a garden, and that's what we were doing. We're at our family farm in, in Hope Hall, and we were uh, raking and we were shoveling, and we were hauling, and we were mixing, and spreading, and mulching, composting, all of these things you do, back-breaking labor, great exercise. But what was remarkable is, I thought about at the end of the day, we spent all day working on our garden, and you know what we didn't touch? We didn't touch a seed. We didn't touch a plant. We, we didn't touch anything green. We played in the dirt. We spent our time sweating and laboring, and, and, and let me tell you, when I laid down that evening, I had to get Carol to come help me get up later, uh, because my back was saying, whoa, what, what is this thing? What, what are you doing? But we never touched a plant. We, we played in the soil. The soil takes work. That's what Jesus talks about in this parable. We call it the parable of the, soil, of the sower because the sower is a central character, but it certainly is a, is a teaching, a parable about soil itself. I'm going to begin. We're going to talk about it. We're going to continue reading. I encourage you to keep the Bible open as we, we look at God's Word. This is Jesus speaking. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered around him, and so that he got into a boat, and he set it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, this is that. So we begin this. We're going to pause there. We're going to look at the parable in a second. But I want you to imagine the scene. I want to set the scene before we listen to the words of Jesus there on that day. There would have been just teeming masses of men and women crowding Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about his teaching. They've heard about what he's been doing. The stories of his healing has gone throughout the land. Everybody's talking about it. Hundreds, probably thousands we're gathering on these occasions to listen to Jesus. But think about this. It was not in a concert hall. It wasn't in a sanctuary or a huge auditorium. It wasn't even, as we were talking about yesterday, for my graduation years ago in Garrett Coliseum. Hundreds gathered in a place that smells like a rodeo, which probably describes most of my high school career. It wasn't in a public place like that, a place designed to assemble people and to keep them in a particular location while the speaker is, is apart from them. They, they were on the, on the ground. They were by the shore. They were pressing in to see Jesus. Now think about this. They've heard by touching Him, healing comes. By getting close, you're able to, to, to understand the attention and the healing of this great man. And so what does he do? As they close in around Him, as the crowds are, are getting tighter, Jesus asks, can I step onto this boat? And he steps onto the boat and has them push it back. So now there is very practically a little bit of space there. But if any of you have ever spent any time on water, it's a very practical thing too. You know, you can't whisper on a lake. You can't tell secrets out in the middle of a pond because you can hear it as clear as day on the shore. What was really wonderful is, is Jesus on this body of water was able to speak. 
to the masses with a little bit of space and the amplification that would have come off of the face of the water. And so on that smelly, working fishing boat, and he tells a story. We call it a parable. A parable is, is simply... A parable, the word comes from two words, para and bolas, meaning to cast alongside. A parable is a story cast alongside of plain instruction. It's a powerful way of teaching. It's, let me tell you a story, and people set down their pens, and they begin to listen. It's, it's a story that Nathan used to convict uh, King David in his sin, where just walking up to the king and said, you're in sin, you need to repent, would have been a fatal move for any servant. But he tells a story and David himself proclaims that the man of the story, his life is for And Nathan was able to say, King, you are that man. Our defenses are down when a parable is told. Our defenses are down when we listen to a story. We listen and the picture is painted with characters and places. And I heard one Bible teacher said, a parable is simply an earthly story with a heavenly theme. Listen to this parable as the waves lap gently along the shore and the thousands listen. Listen. Behold, a servant, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and they devoured it. The other seed fell on rocky soil where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up. But since it had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and they choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and hundredfold. And he said, Jesus. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, uh, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? And so this will pause and we'll look at what's taking place here. Jesus has told this story and then he's alone and it says those around him with the 12. So it would have been more than just 13 Jesus plus the 12. It would have been some others that were close. Remember that in Jesus's ministry uh, that he, he spoke to the thousands. He, he ministered more intimately to the hundreds, even to the, uh, the, the 70. And then we see the 12 that had his specific and special attention. And even within them, there were Peter, James, and John, those, that three, that inner circle. And even John is referred to often as that one that Jesus loved, the, the, the dear friend. So we, we see these relationships. There were many, they were gathered around and they asked Jesus about parables. And so the use of parables, uh, Jesus explains here, and we need to understand, was quite strategic, uh, but it was also a, a means of, of, of specifically speaking to those that the Spirit has enlightened and opened their eyes. First, it was very strategic. It was very wise on his part. In that day, it kept his enemies from being able to take action against him. 
You see, if he had spoken much more plainly and much more directly on some of these matters uh, than Herod, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Roman authorities, uh, they would have taken Jesus and had him immediately arrested, rapidly tried, and put to death all before the right time. On one occasion, we need to see even in John chapter 8, Jesus does not speak in a parable, but he speaks very plainly, and he looks at the scribes of the Pharisees and he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Not a parable, but a direct quote, a direct application of who Jesus is. And so very plain did he speak then. He divinely invoked the name of God, the name that God used to identify himself to Moses, that those around him sought to stone him. Jesus had to hide himself and then flee from the temple. So these parables were very strategic in that Jesus was able to teach and those who had ears could hear and understand. But some would walk away and say, well, what is this, this great teacher, this Jesus? This fellow, we're worried about him. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees and Roman officials and others would come back, those who didn't have ears to hear. What was he talking about? Oh, I don't know. He's talking about seeds and soil today. I don't know. But those who have the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit listen and they understand. Parables were also a means by which Jesus spoke specifically to those spirit-filled believers. Those who should have understood Jesus in that day, they didn't. The message of God had been rejected, and so the parables uh, parables were also a means of, of God's judgment against those who were not looking to Jesus. The quote here that we, we see in the passage is, is, is a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Uh, we see right here in this uh, this passage from from Isaiah, right? It comes right on the heels of of Isaiah being commissioned by God, and he was set out to go and proclaim. But there is an aspect of judgment in the midst of that, that those who were rejecting Jesus would not hear, would not understand. The parables were a bit of God saying, you know, if you don't want to listen. I'm not going to speak to you. You hear a story, you walk away. But those who have ears, those who want to hear, those who will draw near to Jesus will understand. I like what Reverend Derek Thomas says when he writes about this. He says, you don't understand the message of Jesus from a distance. You cannot understand what Jesus is saying from a distance. Spiritual illumination only comes to those committed to Jesus Christ who have ears to hear what Jesus is saying. We don't catch Jesus on the rebound. We don't catch him on the periphery. We draw close and we listen. And you know what's really a wonderful thing? Is even as the disciples came to Jesus, and even as he questions them, says, do you really not understand this? We need to understand that they did the right thing. That they came to Jesus and they said, please teach me. Please explain this to me. Please help me to understand. And we need to have that spirit about us that as we read Scripture, as we seek to apply it in life, that there are going to be those times when when we just don't understand. And that's when we need to fall on our knees and look to God and say, please help me to understand. I, I, I want to draw close to you. I don't want to just catch it and do what I want on the side. I, I want to be right in the middle of your will. I want to be close to you. As Pastor Thomas says, we do not get Jesus' message from a distance. B.B. Warfield, the, uh, the professor uh, uh, from Princeton years ago, uh, referred to the Old Testament in the same way. Imagine if you only had the Old Testament, if you only had the 39 books of Genesis through Malachi, 
And, and that's all you read. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes. Yes, right. But imagine if that was all you had. You see, he referred to the Old Testament as, as being uh, a, a dimly lit room full of shapes and dark corners. And how different that room looks when the light of Jesus shines in. And so as we look to the Old Testament in the light of Jesus, it makes sense. We see the, the trouble and the, 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 uh, the turmoil of Joseph's life and we say, oh, what amazing thing it does to, to set us up to understand our Savior when He comes. That Joseph, as he was falsely accused, as he was slandered, as he was persecuted, as he was oppressed, as he was hurt, as he was abandoned, he was eventually the one that brought redemption for his bringing them into Egypt, that they would have the fat of the land. And it helps us to see the real that is Jesus. When he, you see, so the light is shown into the dark corners and rejoice. In the same way, we pray, God, when, when I read a parable, when I read your word, I want to see it in the light of Jesus. It only makes sense that way. It only makes sense as we look to the author and the perfecter of our So we look at this particular parable. It's a parable of the sower. It's not the first parable that Jesus teaches, but it is the most fully developed. It's told, and then Jesus puts it in context, and then Jesus explains it. He provides his own interpretation. And what's really wonderful is we don't have to rely on an extra biblical commentary. Jesus is his own commentary here. He helps us to see in an infallible way. And so what is Jesus talking about? He, he's, what would the listeners have said if, if they asked when this fellow was teaching? Those who heard, those who uh, had come to, to know Jesus, to be close with him, what was he teaching about? And the simple answer is, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. These are parables about the kingdom. Uh, they would have been captivated by this topic. Because when Jesus is giving his own explanation, uh, what does he say? Um, he, he says, uh, he taught them many parables, and he, he tells that story. And then in verse 11, he says, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom. And what do we learn about the kingdom from this parable? Well, the kingdom of God would have been a captivating thing to the, the, the Jews of that time. Because when somebody starts mentioning the kingdom, the kingdom had been preached and taught in the synagogues for centuries, uh, particularly as they have known oppression from other governments, particularly this time the Romans, who were keeping them within their boundaries, making them you know, stay apart and detached and do their thing and pay their tribute to Rome. And they felt oppressed that they were not self-governing. They were under the boot of Rome. And the kingdom of God would have been a fascinating thing because they would have said, finally, someone is coming to overthrow. For hundreds of years, this has been being taught. They awaited the kingdom of God as they passed by Roman soldiers on the street and as they saw Roman banners all up and down the road, they longed that their king would come. And so Jesus begins by saying, this it helps you to understand the kingdom. But this parable is, is not about a conquering military general. The seeds are not swords. They're not spears. The kingdom is painted in the story not as a battlefield, but as a farm. And the story is not one about warfare, but gardening. It's not a tale about an armor-clad conqueror, but an insignificant little farmer who goes out to sow a seed. Verse 14, the sower seeds the word. Simply put, Jesus says, the sower seeds the word. 
It, it makes perfect sense. We, we cast out the word. We proclaim the word. We scatter the word. We preach the word. We distribute the word. Very clearly spoken, this is not about seeds. It is about the word of God. The word of God that the sower would have had in a, in a great sack uh, on, uh, around his neck and around his waist that he would have been scattering the seed and doing so liberally. And as he scatters the word, as he sows the seed in this, this spiritual picture, this earthly story with a heavenly theme, we start finding out where all those seeds fall. And, and the seeds begin to fall all over the place. First, they fall among the path. Jesus says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Verse 15. They're thrown down on that trampled soil all around the garden where it's, it's worn down, it's compacted, it has not been tilled up. When the seed hits, it bounces. It doesn't make any mark on the soil. It doesn't penetrate where the word just bounces off their exterior. Maybe they've been dragged to church, forced to come. You know, I just go listen to that dry, old, dusty, boring fella talk up there for a while because if I don't, i got to listen to my wife for a week. My mom and dad make me go to church every Sunday. And I just I do everything I can to, not to fall asleep. People who, who begrudgingly, for whatever reason, don't want to listen. People who, when they hear something spiritual being discussed out in the world, they just let it bounce off them. They resist, they fight, or they just belligerently ignore the message. Pastor Terry Johnson, pastor we were privileged to serve with over in, in Savannah, Georgia, uh, talks about this in his book on the parables. He says that one of the great ironies of this type of hearer is that they actually think that they're quite strong, that they're quite uh, self-made and self-sufficient, that they're full of themselves, very independent. This type of soil, this type of hearer tends to be very proud, very puffed up, think that they're quite strong, but the irony is they're actually very much a victim. So what Jesus says right here. It says that Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. That They're quite weak and even prisoners of the evil one who snatches the word away. It doesn't grow because it doesn't. There's one additional category on this particular path, the path where the seed bounces and it falls and it's just sitting out there until Satan comes and snatches it away. We add this to that prideful heart, to the rebellious heart, and that would be the careless heart. There are so many who, in the abundance of the word that we have today, carelessly sit and, and think that they're abiding in the word. They would sit and listen and give it just, you know, just a superficial moment. And it doesn't ever bounce in, you see, because they think it really doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. You know what? There's not a sense of urgency. I don't need to deal with this today. That person might nod and agree, sure, 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 but they don't do anything about it. There's time, this listener says. I'll deal with it one day, but the seed, the seed just hangs out on the path until Satan snatches it away, and when it's needed, it's not. So the first type of soil, Jesus said, is no soil at all. It's a path. And, and Satan snatches this away, and the word's not there to grow. But there's another type of soil. Jesus continues. We, we, we saw the, the pathway, but we also see the, the rocky soil. Verse 16, Jesus explains that. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. 
And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. What Jesus describes in this soil, this rocky soil, is a shallow heart. We saw the pathway where it's, it's hard, nothing's getting in there. And, and then there is the, the, the rocks. There was an old Jewish saying that when God created all the rocks of the world, he put them all in Israel. That it was, it was, it's, a, it's a rocky terrain. It's, it's, it, in so many ways, it's difficult to garden uh, because the, the rocks would not permit it. I always think about that in the old, uh, uh, the old Gary Cooper movie, Sergeant York. I remember that he, he longed for the day that he could get some bottom land where he did not have to plow and work with the rocks. Uh, and that was here in the United States. When you get into Israel, uh, the rocks were such a treacherous thing, and there would be little pockets of soil, and you'd be encouraged for a moment that something would spring up in that, but the roots were not able to sink in deep. Uh, the, uh, the soil itself was very, very shallow. How does this relate to people? Well, there might be early enthusiasm to Christ until problems and threats arise. We, we see this happen, regrettably, way too often, is that people... Uh, they come to be a part of fellowship. They come to be a part of a study. They come to be a part of a church. But they so very often come for the wrong reasons. They might be good reasons, but they're not the ultimate reasons. They, they enjoy the fellowship. They enjoy the company. They enjoy a good environment for their children to be in. They might like the music. They might like the speaking. They might like something about it. They come, and these are, these are good things, but uh, they're never one to Christ. Uh, they simply like some of the peripheral issues about being in the church. They like being in respectable community. They like being around godly people, but they never themselves come to Jesus. As we said earlier, you don't understand these things. These things sink in deep by being distant from Jesus. And so what happens is when, when troubles come, they fall away. Troubles come, they, they fall away, they're discouraged. But as James tells us, true faith is perfected in the midst of trial. True faith endures beyond the rocks. So we see the pathway, hard place, the soil uh, is not there. The seed doesn't grow at all. There's the rocky where there's little pockets, maybe a little bit of, of soil, uh, that just enough to maybe get somebody's interest up. And as John tells us, that these people often come for a while and they go out from us because they were never truly of us. Then Jesus continues. What do we see here in verse 18? He says, others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Oh, the weeds. Anybody that's ever gardened, oh, weeds are. Anyone who's ever tried to have a lawn knows how miserable weeds are. Weeds are thieves. Weeds are, are crooks. What do they do? They rob productive plants of nutrition and water. They strangle them out. And Jesus talks about the thorns and the weeds of our lives. And, and when, when the seed falls among the weeds, we need to be aware of, of what can happen. There's, there's several things. Jesus mentions first the cares of the world. Cares of the world that become distractions to us. They rob our attention that should be directed at God, they begin screaming and hollering for our eyes, for our attention. We think about things like bills and business. We think about exams, not necessarily bad things, but things that crowd out the things of God. Life is busy. Life is hectic. 
And it's one of the best tools of the evil one is to just get us so busy doing decent, routine, normal, American things that we don't do the things that have eternal value. Paul in Ephesians says, make the most of your days because they're evil. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. What does he mean the days are evil? It means the days will consume all your attention. The, the routine things of life will absolutely distract you from investing in the things of eternity. The cares of the world. What else does Jesus mention? He mentions the deceitfulness of riches and the illusion of security that they bring, that we would foolishly put our trust and our hope and our ability to pay our way out of it. You know what? I'm not going to worry about health because I can afford the best health care that's out there. You know, and I'm not going to worry about, about eternity and security and that sort of thing because I'm going to live a great life here. And then at the last moment before I go off to heaven, then I'll finally repent of all the things that I did. But right now, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to be comfortable. I'm going to live in leisure. I'm going to get bigger. I'm going to get better. And this is going to be true happiness. We chase the buck and we don't pursue. This is the rich fool that Jesus describes in Luke 12 builds up barns and he looks and he surveys all the barn and he says, oh, I've got all that I ever need. And Jesus says, oh, you fool. It's foolish to get distracted by the things of this world and not care for our. And the last thing Jesus mentions is the desire for other things, the desire for other things. I'd say today, one of the most vivid uh, Examples of this particular desire for other things is our passion, our obsession with amusement and entertainment. We have to always be amused. We have to always be entertained. We have to always be have something clamoring for our attention at every moment. I am I'm amazed that we find more and more times to, to fill our lives full of entertainment and amusement. Uh, when we wake up in the morning, uh, as we're going to sleep at night, when we get in the car, you know, it, we got, it's got to be the radio. It's got to be, you know, listening to tunes or, you know, certainly with the kids in the back seat, it needs to be a video, even if it's just a five-minute ride to the church. We have to fill that full of amusement and entertainment. You go to the grocery store, and they have TVs, and they have things to entertain you all around there. And, oh, my goodness, I can't even pump gas without finding television screens on the gas pump. Because, heaven forbid, I should not be entertained for that long while I pump my gas. We so, so pursue entertainment. And you know what happens? We start grading everything by that criteria. And our evaluation and understanding of worship and times together begins to look like a movie or a music. That we, we go and we worship someplace and we, we leave there and we critique it, just like we're Siskel and Ebert or we're... IMDB or, or, or whatever uh, source you go to find out if a movie is worth seeing or TV show is worth watching. What is it? The, the preacher's illustrations were too dry today. Uh, the, the choir song was too flat. The music was too fast. What, what was it? Sunday school lesson this morning was too dry. What do we do? We, we critique based on how much we were entertained and amused. Instead of saying how entertaining was it or how did it compare to other things I've seen and listened to, how about this? How well did I seek out Christ in the time in the Word today? Did I seek Christ in our time together? How did I do in worship? We need to turn that introspectively. We need to look at ourselves. We need to start asking, what is it that I learned? How is my heart today? How will my life be different? Musically, how well did I sing? Versus maybe the way the folks around you did. Or the folks that are sitting behind you, right Bruce? And somebody is sitting in front of you. Bruce has been worried, but by singing out, folks aren't going to sit in front of him. But, but they do, because they love you. 
We need to be asking, how did I do in worship? How, how is my heart today? And not how well was I entertained? We see then Jesus gives us this great word of hope, this great moment of, of great joy. He says, but, oh, oh, when you start looking at lists of things and then you see the word but, there, it can be good and bad. It can be a list of good things and but there's bad. But in this case, there's bad soil. There's no soil. There's thorny soil. But, verse 20, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. They accept it and they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. This is Jesus telling us the good news. There is good soil. That's a good spot for an amen. There is good soil. Thank you. I know we're Presbyterians, but we're not dead yet. (laughs) I may be sanctified, but I'm not yet petrified. There is good soil. There are receptive hearts. That's what the good soil is. It's not perfect soil. There's always going to be that mixture, but it's soil in which the seed grows. Now, how do we know? How do we know if we are that good soil? Well, we see the fruit. Easy enough, and we will see that in our garden that Thomas and I worked on uh, the other day and we will continue to work on. Uh, we, we will know how good the soil is by the harvest. And as we look at our lives, do I see in my life, honestly, in those moments of quiet where we turn off the amusement and entertainment, honestly, do I find myself growing in love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you look upon my limbs, do you... Not perfectly, not always, but increasingly so. Jesus says, there will be fruit and it will be in abundance. There is be a great harvest. Jesus has presented this to us and, and, and the message I want you to leave here is that the fault is not in the message. The message, the seed is good. The seed is good. I was talking about working the soil with Thomas this week. We've got the seed. We ordered the seed. It's good seed. It is, it is organic. It's natural. It's heirloom. It's non-GMO. It's all that kind of good stuff. It's guaranteed. They'll send us more seed if this seed doesn't work. It's guaranteed. God's word is guaranteed. The problem is the soil. Jesus is the perfect example of a sower. What we've been called to do is to take the seed and we're to sow it liberally. We're to sow it always. We are not to to look out there and say, well, I think your fair soil, your rocky soil, your thorny soil, your no soil at all, I'm not going to sow here, I'm going to sow here. We throw the seed everywhere. We throw it liberally and we throw it as a loving gardener who longs to see a great harvest. And what's really wonderful is that the Spirit is at work in this world to take and to till in the Spirit that the soil would be made rich. It does not, this parable doesn't call us to look around and critique the soil of others, but to liberally sow the seed, but also to discern my soil, to know the soil analysis of who I am. In what way am I being hard? Am I being the path? Do I pridefully refuse to learn from some teacher just because they don't particularly say it the way I want to hear it? How often do I come not wanting to hear, but just come out of tradition or pride? In what ways am I too shallow? Are there ways that, that my faith is, is about to collapse at the first sign of trouble? In, in what way am I distracted by the thorns of life? What preoccupies my mind 
when Christ when Christ needs to be first and foremost. Let us pray that the soil of our hearts would be ready to grow. And may we go forth. We would be both the soil and the sower after the pattern of our Savior. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that first that you would call us to cast the seed always. To always be always be about. Forgive us, Lord God, when we so sparingly are not at all. And Father, forgive us for our foolishness of expecting there to be a harvest. But how can they hear? But Lord, too, we also ask that you would soften our hardness, that our hearts would be pliable, they would be receptive. Lord, that your word would dig deeply into my heart, that it would never be uprooted. And Lord, I pray that you would tear out the weeds You would remove the weeds so that the word would flourish in my life. And Father, that the fruit would be born. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that the word is good. Father, may it grow among us to spread it abroad. For your glory in Jesus. Amen.